It is five o'clock somewhere and you've tuned into episode 17 of BRC. For those of you who'd like to watch this episode, it's available on our website, YouTube and Spotify. Today in our Reading on the Rock segment, I speak with Adrian Covert about his book, Taverns of the American Revolution, and we'll find out some very interesting history, including how the term bar came to be. Then later in the show, we'll see what's new in the market. Stay with us. There's nothing better than the smell of coffee in the morning. What if you could enjoy a coffee subscription of fresh, roasted specialty coffee while making a difference in the lives of farmers that grow it? What if you also had access to a virtual coffee community of other coffee lovers and the coffee farmer and roaster? That's all part of the Farm to Cup Coffee Club subscription at Unleashed Coffee. Subscribe today. UnleashedCoffee.com Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, or whenever it is you're listening to the podcast. Today we have on our special Reading on the Rocks segment, Mr. Adrian Covert, who is the author of uh, Taverns of the American Revolution. And I met him um, a few years back just before the lockdown uh, at an event where we discussed his book, and I loved it. And he even autographed it for me. For those of you at home that are watching, you can see the little autograph there. Look at that. I love it when I get autographs. Um, this is one of my favorite books. I, I really love this book for two reasons. One, I love history. and I love hearing about American history, even the bad parts. But this mostly has good parts, which I like. Um, and it's about taverns. And it's about the remaining taverns that are still out in the world today from the time of the American Revolution. So today, I'm going to introduce Adrian Covert. Thank you for having me, Carrie. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. So I, I see some things of some big changes has happened in your world since last we spoke. Yeah, you know, the whole world has kind of turned upside down. Um, but uh, I'm still in the San Francisco Bay Area, just moved up a little bit north, uh, had a kid, and life is good. Great. And I know that the last time we spoke, you were working on a second book, which we will get to um, after we talk about this. But let's talk about this for a second. One of my favorite things about this book is that you kind of cover everything. You talk about the places, the history, you even pop in some recipes for drinks. You have a great map here showing all the different stuff that's still around. Tell me, what was your inspiration to start this book? And tell me about the journey of writing it. Sure. Uh, well, I the long story short is that I tried, I wrote the book that I tried to buy, but I couldn't find. I was at an old bar in San Francisco years ago and uh, the little shamrock on Fulton Street in the inner sunset. It's a great old Irish pub. And I was getting into a, an argument or debate discussion about what the oldest bar in San Francisco was. And there was a lot of uncertainty about it. Depends on, you know, how you count the bars, etc. And so from that conversation, I went out and I figured out what the actual oldest bar in San Francisco was. But then I started asking, you know, what's the oldest bar in California? What's the oldest bar in the United States? Uh, and so I started digging around and I realized that there was surprisingly little written about old taverns from the colonial period in the United States, especially about the taverns that are still standing. You, what you tend to find are some good scholarship on the historic taverns, uh, the Green Dragon in Boston, for example, that was really the headquarters of the Sons of Liberty and had a, 
uh, an outsized role in the revolution. But that tavern doesn't exist anymore. At least the original one doesn't exist anymore. Right. So I really wanted a a road trip guide to take me through the colonies to all the oldest pubs that are still standing. And it just didn't exist. So with this project, I set out to create a guidebook, a traveler's guide, really, to the uh, all of the surviving pre-1800 taverns that are still standing on the East Coast in the original 13 colonies. That's awesome. And how many uh, did you find that were still standing? That's a really good question. So there are about 300 or so that are still standing. Um, about half of those are private residencies. So I don't include the address of those in the books. I don't want people getting, you know, emailing me about why I listed their garage on, in my book. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I did list uh, all of the buildings that are still used for public purposes, of which there are 171 taverns, pre-1800 taverns that are still functioning in the United States. About half of them are bed and breakfasts, about uh, 35% are pubs or restaurants or bars, and then the rest are typically uh, living history museums. So they're kind of set up with old period furniture, and you, you pay a couple dollars and you walk around and see what life was like. And then there's like a couple random ones, like there's one that's a Starbucks and there's one that's a yoga studio. <laughs> A Starbucks. That's terrible. <laughs> As I drink my coffee. That's terrible. So out of all the ones you visited, what which one was your favorite and which one did you find was the most uh was probably the most like it was back in the day? Uh that is a really good question. So it's it's kind of like asking me to pick my favorite child. Um, cause I have a special relationship with all of the, the 21 that I, I took photos of for the book. I didn't visit all of the 171. I, I picked the 21 most, uh, historically significant in my opinion and best preserved. Um, so I, of those, I think the one that's best preserved, um, or maybe I'll start with my favorite. Um, my favorite is the white horse. And that's okay. in the White Horse Tavern. That's in Newport, Rhode Island. This is the oldest tavern in the United States. Uh, it was built in originally, the original building was built, um, I believe in 1655, uh, pulling it off the top of my head. There you go. Um, but it was converted to a tavern in 1673. And it has looked more or less the same ever since. And it is just a gorgeous building. Uh, the inside is low ceilings, fireplaces in every room. It is really cozy. And it's a great farm-to-table restaurant now. So uh, it, it's a good date spot, too. So it, it's a fantastic one. There's some piracy history uh, in, um, uh, in Newport involving this tavern. Uh, so I'm a big fan of it. As far as the best preserved tavern goes, um, there are a couple that are in the runnings for that distinction. I think the old 76 house in uh, Tappan, New York, Okay, that's a, that's a great one. That's about 45 minutes north of the city. Uh, that one was established in 1755, and it had some big history that occurred there. Um, the hanging, uh, the trial and the hanging of Benedict Arnold or excuse me, not oh, Benedict wow. Arnold. Um, um, uh, 
John Andre. Thank oh. you. Uh, skipped his name. Um, basically, uh, Benedict Arnold's co-conspirator in the British Army uh, was a spy named John Andre. And he was captured uh, near the uh, near the, the old 76 house in, Tap- in Tappan, New York. Um, and he was jailed at the tavern for a few days while the trial uh, continued. Washington was there. Alexander Hamilton was there. Big names from the American Revolution were all involved uh, and had w- went into and visited this tavern. And the building is essentially the same as it was uh, wow. at the time. The At one point in the late 19, uh, 1800s, the roof caved in. So it's definitely had some work on it. But uh, when you walk in, you are stepping into a space that has fundamentally remained unchanged since uh, some major events of the revolution happened. So that's a good one too. That's really cool. That would be really fun to walk in that one. So um, how long did it take you to to do this book? How long was the project? It took me only about a year to do. And I got to thank uh, the National Archives, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, University of Massachusetts, Mount Vernon, all of these uh uh, these institutions have the founding fathers' records all completely digitized, so you nice. can like look up Washington's letters and word search for rum and see what he had to say about it. Um, it so that that's really fun. That was really fun. Uh, so it took me about a year. I think the biggest challenge was finding these taverns. Like I said, there was not a uh, a travel guide uh, or an index that that uh, spelled out where all these were. So there was a book that I found written in the 1920s by an author named Elise Lathrop, uh, Early American Inns and Taverns. And she had, it was just a a book on early states, including the original 13 colonies and also some of the uh, Midwestern states that joined the Union shortly after that in the Ohio River Valley, especially. And she just lists just some taverns that were historic, that were old, and uh, what cities they were in. Did not include the address and did not include whether or not they were still standing. She listed historic inns and taverns that had been destroyed by her time, let alone the ones that had been destroyed in the hundred years between her writing this book and me writing mine. Right. So, and her book had about a thousand different taverns in it. So I started there and I, I digitized that list and then you know, I, I went to the old, you know, towns. Uh, typically, if you Google Earth some city, you can find, you know, the old part of town. And then just do a street view. And if I find something that's suspicious, then I can do a, a local or a deeper dive with the local historical society and try to tease it out. So wow. that was how I did it. It was about a, a year of hunting. That's really cool. And then how long were you on the road when you went to go uh, check out the 21 that you picked? Uh, it was two weeks in total. Felt like a year <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're drinking your way through, you know, two dozen bars. Uh, it it was awesome. It was a great experience. And I've the things that make me happiest probably after writing this book is that every now and then I get an email or like a tag on Twitter or something from someone in colonial garb doing the road trip and they got my book in hand. It just really warms my day. Oh, that's great. That's great. So when you went to these places and met the people that 
worked there, were there some that were like totally into the history of their place or, and then was there some people that were like, wait, this did what? This was around since when? Great question. So virtually all of the taverns that I saw were aware, but some play it up and others don't. And I think the almost all of them play it up. The one tavern that treats it most interestingly, in my opinion, is the Mill Street Hotel and Tavern in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Okay. This place is really fascinating. This this is an this is an old one. This one was built in 1723, one of the oldest in the United States. And you would drive past it today and you wouldn't re- you probably wouldn't think twice about it. If you stopped and, you know, kind of admired the building, it's a, it's a small brick building with an obvious wooden addition onto it. But the wooden addition is very consistent with the the existing the old architecture so it looks pretty seamless um if you were to look at it and really think you know you might think yeah maybe that is pretty old but it's so subtle that you people i'm sure drive past it every day or walk past it every day without realizing that this is one of the oldest bars in the united states one of the things i love about it is that the exterior though it has the brick facade um so it's really nice brick facade there isn't a huge signage uh, about, you know, uh, come visit this place. Uh, but you walk in, there is a beautiful sign out in front. But, you know, again, you would walk past this without necessarily realizing it. You walk in and it feels like a roadhouse from the 1950s, like oh, wow. a cocktail bar from the 1950s. It does not, it, the inside has not been preserved as a, historic tavern. Right. However, the bartender, when you ask, when I asked the bartender about the bar's history, she reached behind the bar and pulled out a framed copy of every liquor license going back to the early 19th century oh, wow. and was very uh, eloquent and, uh, and lucid on the facts of the bar and how it was part uh, how it played a part in uh, uh, as a, a, a command center for British soldiers, for British officers uh, in the winter of 1776, um, when Washington and his troops actually feigned an attack on Mount Holly to draw reserves away from uh, the Delaware River, which they then crossed on uh, Christmas morning um, uh, at Trenton. So it, it, it plays an important part in American history, but you would go past it every single day and you walk inside and it doesn't feel like a historic tavern necessarily. But that's actually part of the the appeal of the thing because when I was there, I stopped outside and I saw there was a guy smoking a cigarette on the top deck. And he asked me politely if he could get off, if he wanted me to move out of the photo because I was taking pictures of the tavern. And I said, no, you're great. You know, it looks, looks good up there. And I talked to him and he said that he was a uh, a tow truck driver who was staying in one of the rooms. Oh, wow. Um, because he was in between places. And then that's when it occurred to me that this tavern has essentially been providing the same social and economic function this entire time. Wow. Since 1723. Whereas most taverns have been renovated into fine dining establishments, something they were not, most of them were not when they first opened. They were really more like boarding houses with, 
you know, a, a, you know, some cafeteria in them really right. that served alcohol. That's most of them were like that. And this one uh, still is, it's essentially the same serving the same function. So that was pretty cool. So tell me about the rooms. Did you get to go see any of the bedrooms upstairs? And um, I'm assuming they probably had like one central bathroom, like a dorm where, the, you know, not bathrooms in each room. I didn't stay at, I didn't visit the rooms at this hotel, um, at the Mill Street Hotel and Tavern, um, the one we were just talking about. Uh, that one had medium term rentals. So people who are kind of in between jobs or in between places. I did stay at a number of the hotels at the taverns that have been converted into more proper hotels, um, like the the Griswold Inn in Essex, Connecticut, opened in 1776. This place has been renovated into a, a fantastic and lovely boutique hotel. There are restrooms, uh, there are toilets and bathrooms inside each of the rooms, which there definitely were not um, at the time. Uh, so there are much, in general, taverns today are much more comfortable than they would have been in the uh, 1700s. In fact, I was really shocked when writing this book at just the amount of writing that survives from that period, describing how terrible conditions at American taverns were. Wow. <laughs> the, the food was, was rancid, uh, the alcohol was bad, the they were full of fleas and lice yeah. um, and you had to share a bed you, you, no matter who you were you know george washington could crawl into bed next to you um <laughs> these were essentially dormitories or hostels this was a place the united states at the time was a land-rich cash-poor uh, country and so it was rustic and wow. the accommodations are much nicer today well, that's good. That's good. I know I went to a an old tavern in Oregon uh, when I was shooting something a few years back, and there was a bar at the bottom floor, and then the top floor was all rooms. The rooms were all nice. It was all very, you know, original floor and all that, and each had a sink, like a random sink in the middle of the room, but the bathroom was down the hall, and I thought, wow, that's that's crazy that that's how it used to be. And not even that. Before there was a bathroom down the hall, they had to go outside and just, you know, do their business. <laughs> so I, I, that's crazy. Uh, thinking about or they it. would have to do their business inside at, at, at early colonial taverns, there would have been a chamber pot yeah. in the chamber. So you would have been in the room with other people and you, you drop your skivvies and take care of business yeah, in a gross. pot there. I mean, it is a level <laughs> of intimacy that is beyond most of our imaginations today. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you think about like how most of these people come from, most of the colonials came from Britain where they're hoity-toity. And I just can't see British people just taking down their skivvies. <laughs> I just can't see that. But I, yeah, that's how it was. There was, there was a joke. I'm going to get it wrong, but I'll, I'll get the essence of it. That was printed in a colonial newspaper. And it was a conversation between a guest and a tavern keeper. And the guest says, do you have any ale? And he says, no, sir, I, I don't have any ale. Do you have feed for my horses? No, sir, I don't have any feed for your horses. Do you have uh, an ordinary, the meal at the time, a lunch meal? No, we don't have any ordinaries. Well, sir, what do you have? Well, I have a tavern. <laughs> it, it actually kind of ran, part of the reason, there is actually some explanation for this. In Pennsylvania in particular, uh, I believe this movement started, but it spread to other states. 
then as now, people don't particularly enjoy paying taxes. And so colonial governments were interested in finding ways to raise revenues without raising general taxes. One of the ways that they did it, uh, beginning in Pennsylvania, was they started licensing more and more taverns. And the tavern licenses could help fund the public government um, without a general tax, and it would allow people to maintain their own businesses as innkeepers. But the colonial economies didn't produce enough uh, substance, you know, food, uh, feed for horses, alcohol to supply all of the taverns. And so you have these amazing letters from from Ben Franklin, you know, America's bon vivant from the colonial time saying that we have so many taverns now that they ruin one another and they spread drunkenness and debauchery throughout the land. And so long as the governments uh, remain dependent on tavern licenses, we will remain a drunken ruin. Um, we won't be able to get our act together right? because, you know, we've got too many drunkards and too many taverns. Yeah. I wonder if that's like the first seedling of of how eventually we had the prohibition, which is so sad. Now on prohibition, this is something that I found was really interesting. There is um, the best estimate. We actually do have some estimates on alcohol consumption in the colonial, uh, in early colonial America, early United States. And around the best estimate is that around 1776, the per capita alcohol consumption in the United States would have placed us today, um, today would rank about the second drunkest in the world behind, I believe, Lithuania. Wow. Uh, today, the United States is a much more sober country where we rank about 30th, 25th to 30th, somewhere in there on alcohol consumption. And, uh, but we would have been, the, the colonials would have ranked number two. Now, <laughs> and, but alcohol consumption increases from there already one of the highest would have been nearly the highest in the world today but alcohol consumption increased uh, about 50 percent from the 1776 baseline by the 1820s because what happens is after the revolution is won the ohio all of the treaties that britain had with the native americans in the ohio river valley and elsewhere were null and void with respect to the, you know, the new United States. So American settlers flooded the Ohio River Valley. And what did they plant? They planted corn, they planted wheat, and without an easy way to get that food stuff back to the market before it spoiled, the best thing to do with it was to distill it into alcohol because yeah. it was cheaper, cheaper to ship and it actually increased with value uh, over time rather than spoiling over time. So the United States alcohol market is totally flooded with whiskey right around the presidency, the beginning of the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. And he actually, uh, there are letters of his, uh, he tries to combat public drunkenness, which he attributes to the availability of cheap whiskey by making wine cheaper. He felt <laughs> that if people could just drink sophisticated wine instead of this barbarian whiskey, they won't get they won't be as drunk. And, you know, it might have also helped that he was America's largest wine maker at the time. Right, right. So I think he had a bit of a, a, a self-motivated interest here. Uh, but that's how Jefferson tried to handle it. And then alcohol consumption peaks in the 1820s uh, to just really what we would consider today horrific scales from writings at the time, 
family abuse uh, was just off the charts. Lever cirrhosis and cancers were just off the charts. There were, it was really a pretty bad time. And from that, uh, from that period in particular, uh, arises the uh, prohibition movement. Yeah. Yeah, we, we did get pretty drunk back in the day. That's for sure. So w- when you were researching all the stuff with, say, President Washington, you did go to um, Mount Vernon, yes? I did. Okay. And uh, did you get to see how they've recreated his, his whiskey making area, his, his stills? Yes, uh, it's fantastic. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, so Washington had uh, four stills at one point, making him the largest whiskey producer in the United States. This would have been right after he retires from the presidency and returns to Mount Vernon. Uh, he was making, I believe, 13,000 gallons a year. Um, so yeah, he was a major whiskey producer. And the uh, after his death, the still and other parts of Mount Vernon fell, started to fall in disrepair. But they, they did restore those stills. They're gorgeous and they work. They're functioning stills. And so you can get at the Mount Vernon gift shop a bottle of George Washington Mount Vernon whiskey using the recipe that he used. I must warn you, however, that if you get it, if you get the White Lightning, um, which is the whiskey that hasn't been aged, it's just straight out still. That's rough stuff. And uh, because it was in such high demand when Washington was making it, they would just sell it in barrels right out of the still. And so you'd be selling clear whiskey not aged or tempered at all. So it's it's hot, it's spicy. But at Vernon, they, at Mount Vernon, they also do age some of their whiskey too. So you can get it aged and that tastes much nicer. That's great. And were any of the taverns that you uh, found or researched, were any of them anywhere close to where Mount Vernon is? That's a good question. Um, actually, I think the closest tavern, the closest tavern to Mount Vernon would be the Gadsby's Tavern in Alexandria, Virginia. I think that's only about a half an hour away. Wow. And that's a great tavern. Um, Interesting story on that one. There's the original tavern building, and then the tavern itself expanded in the early 1800s, and it bought the adjacent building. The adjacent building is now a living history museum of a colonial era tavern. And the original tavern building is still functioning as a tavern. So it's kind of the best of both worlds where you can enjoy a meal and, you know, modern conveniences while visiting this museum. And they also have a fantastic uh, preserved ice cellar uh, that you can visit. And it's, it's right on the corner there. You can actually see it if you're walking on the sidewalk. If you look down, they've got some transparent glass that you can look into it. But basically they would, they would drag ice from the Delaware River um, and they would pack it underground with straw and it would stay packed and frozen through the summer, like into August. So you can serve nice beverages. That's crazy. Huh. Who knew? All right. So this book led you to your next idea, which I I said Delaware River. I meant the Potomac. Oh, Potomac. Yeah. That that makes more sense. Um, So this book took you on a wild ride. <clears throat> and then last time we spoke, you were starting another another book. And uh, I know it's been slow goings being that we were in lockdown and you couldn't go anywhere and you've had a child. But how far have you gotten on the new book? And can you tell us a little about it? Sure. Yeah. The, the project now is trying to identify all of the surviving frontier saloons in the West. 
And I've identified, I believe all of them. Uh, there's about 65, 70, which is fascinating, I, I thought, because this is 100 years after the colonial period ends in a much larger expanse of land than the original 13 colonies. And there are much fewer bars from the era that still survive today. Uh, I try to come up with uh, a couple explanations for it. Um, but I think the biggest is that most of the frontier saloons were set up in boom towns and they were built haphazardly, um, made of flammable materials. And, you know, as soon as the mine closed and the town turned to ghost town, you know, the, the proprietors left along with everybody else. So there's this element of impermanence in the West that is unique and different from the colonial taverns where the colonial taverns were made of bricks and stone and thick beams. These are buildings that the, the, the architects clearly intended to last a very long time. Whereas in the West, you have these saloon buildings that are made of, you know, sticks and clapper, clapboards and uh, tents in some instances and clearly weren't meant to go the distance. That said, the ones who have gone the distance are absolutely fantastic and they send you to the Old West. And they have, um, where I'm at today is that I've visited and photographed all of the surviving frontier saloons in California. Oh, wow. And um, in California and in Washington, uh, I think there's one more I need to do in, in Oregon. And then there are a whole bunch in Colorado, Montana, uh, a couple in Utah, even. Um, I've done all the ones in Nevada, too. Um, and New Mexico and Arizona, I still got to do. So, yeah, the the COVID and having a kid kind of pumped the brakes on it. I've been thinking about maybe I can put out the book just on California. Yeah. Um, because the largest concentration of surviving saloons in the West are in California and take to the the gold rush um, and the years following the California right. gold rush. So there, there could be something there too. Cool. Well, you'll have to let me know when any version of the book is available and we'll have you back to talk on the, the rest of the findings that you come across. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you today. And I, and I'm, I hope everybody runs out and gets this book. It's really fascinating. Oh, you know what? I wanted to ask you before we go. How did you find these drink recipes that you put in here? Uh, great question. So some of them, that's the flip. Yes, uh, the flip. The flip is a hilariously gross beverage. Yeah, uh, it is. It's gross. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely disgusting. But if you really want that historic authenticity, I feel like you got to try it. Um, it's, a, it's a drink made with egg and hot ale and cream and rum and molasses and you shake it up and you froth it up and you know you you throw it back and it speaks to the era this kind of antiquated era of cocktails where drinks and alcoholic beverages were really seen as a calorie supplement and a meal supplement so these big kind of mealy drinks you can make it, uh, and I, I, every winter, every Christmas season, I just kind of put myself through it and I make one. <laughs> um, but I make it with eggnog. And so the eggnog is helpful in that it combines egg and cream without you having to worry about salmonella. So, right. so I, I just use eggnog and substitute that for the egg and the cream, which I recommend. Uh, I provide that substitute recipe in the book. So I found 
that recipe in actual colonial and tavern menus for how they made flip. The other, uh, several other drinks, I believe the syllabub also has period era, period era recipes were also around. Almost all of the recipes, in fact, are recipes that I found in period literature from menus at the time. There was one, the cocktail from Longfellow's Wayside Inn, that was a, you know, I'm gonna, they're going to kill me because I don't remember the name of the cocktail because it's been a few years. But the Longfellow's Wayside Inn has uh, a cocktail that they claim to be the oldest in the United States. It is a rum cocktail, not surprisingly, but I recommend folks try that. It, it is delicious. And if you are in the Massachusetts area, Longfellow's Wayside Inn is uh, one of the, the best taverns already. And they have a, a beautiful bar, amazing event space, beautiful grounds, and this historic cocktail, which they've really kind of perfected. That's awesome. Well, Adrian, thanks again for being on the show today. And then please do contact us when you are ready to put out the next book. It's all very fascinating. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Carrie. To learn more about Adrian's book, visit BarrelRoomChronicles.com and click on this episode's show page for complete show notes and a link to buy the book. We'll be right back. Yeah! Hey guys, we're back, finally, after COVID-19. I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in Whiskey, A Chef's Journey. That chef. Yes. We started shooting just before the pandemic lockdown. And now today, our very first day, you are catching us on set. And we would love to talk to you about how you can help get us from here to your TV set. The thing is, we've run out of money. We mounted a pre-production campaign, which was very successful. Thank you very much for that. But now we're back into production and we need your support for this you supported this uh, the first go-round, or if you didn't, we welcome your support this time. The thing is, we want to take this show around the world, quite literally. Quite literally. And that takes money. Yes. So, won't you help us get this to market? You can visit whiskeyachefsjourney.com for all of the information you're going to need to help us realize this project. Well, I, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Last year, the collaboration between George Dickel and the Leopold Brothers brought whiskey fans a one-of-a-kind, historically-inspired blend. Following the success of this inaugural release, the two distilleries have announced the return of the George Dickel and Leopold Brothers collaboration blend. Just in time for the holidays, consumers can find the George Dickel and Leopold Brothers collaboration blend in select markets across the U.S., starting now for a suggested retail price of $109.99. The makers of the award-winning Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey Portfolio are launching not one, not two, but three new whiskeys by the end of the year, starting with the release of Uncle Nearest's Straight Rye, its second rye expression. The 100-proof rye will be followed by the release of Uncle Nearest's Single Barrel Black Label Whiskey and Uncle Nearest's Single Barrel Rye. The Uncle Nearest Straight Rye Whiskey will be available for purchase for $59 at the Nearest Green Distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and will be available online and will be rolling out on shelves all across the nation throughout this month.
And finally, Keeper's Heart, a unique blend of high-proof Irish whiskey and American rye whiskey, is now available in select markets. Keeper's Heart is always a careful blend. It's a marriage of three different types of whiskey. And of course, some marriages are more intense than others, which is how they arrived at this newest 110-proof release. For more information on these new releases and links on where you can find them, visit our website for this episode's show notes. That does it for today's show. To read notes on this episode or learn more about our guests, please visit BarrelRoomChronicles.com. If you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. If you really liked it and you want to show your support, buy us a whiskey through our Kofi site at ko-fi.com slash BRC or become an exclusive member of the Barrel Room Parlor, where you'll get exclusive content not seen anywhere else. And finally, if you work in the whiskey or spirits industry or just have a deep passion for whiskey and want to share your spirits journey, register to be a guest through our website. Thanks for joining me. Until next time, Salangeva. Barrel Room Chronicles is a production of First Real Entertainment and is distributed by Anchor FM and is available on Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.